Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. you pop crazy youngsters and welcome to part two of the 50th episode of chart music you'll notice we're not making a big deal about the 50th because you know most of us have already had a 50th and we know what a fucking anticlimax that is so we're moving on we've only just begun pop crazy youngsters we've scratched the surface and nothing more on our journey through old episodes of top of the pops all right then, pop craze youngsters, it's time to go way back to March of 1996. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Live and exclusive, the Prince and the Khalifs on top of the pops tonight. <laughs> It's 7 o'clock on Thursday, March the 21st, 1996, and we are immediately assailed by the sight of Prince Nazim Hamid with the WBO World Featherweight Championship belt over his shoulder, surrounded by six surly youths in baggy urban wear. He tells us that he and they, the Khalifs, will be live and exclusive on Top of the Pops tonight, and we kick right into the strains of Red Hot pop which has been in effect now for 13 months and is already showing its age Mm. we're now two years into the rick blacksill era of top of the pops aren't we chaps yeah blacksill the sixth executive producer of the show moved into television from radio one where he worked as a senior producer making him the first non-tv person to assume the role Taxed with the job of dragging the show firmly into the 90s, he was given pretty much carte blanche when it came to programming bands and artists. And in last week's episode, he completely broke with tradition, as an interview with him in this week's Melody Maker points out. It goes like this. Biss, Glaswegian purveyors of bratty disco punk, have become the first new and unsigned act to appear on Top of the Pops in 32 years. And the show's producer, Rick Blacksill, told the maker this week that this was just one example of his determination to represent up-and-coming music alongside well-established chart residents. He said, Top of the Pops obviously uses the Top 40 to an extent, and certainly in the past always used to use it, but under the guidelines and the way I produce the show, I can go elsewhere looking for things. 
It's really important to have your David Bowies and Tina Turners on as well. But if you have those sort of acts on every week, what's different about Top of the Pops? They are huge names and they are great for the programme, but it's got to have a talking point and it's got to show new music coming through. And I'm luckily in a position where they let me get on and do that. I just want to break in there. Isn't that our job to break new music as pop-crazed youngsters and record consumers? (laughs) Didn't we do that anyway? A little bit. And we've always, on chart music, found it a little bit kind of sleazy and gross and wrong and contrary to the spirit of Top of the Pops when they have something on there that's not even in the top 40. Yeah, right. We recognise mm. that it happens from time to time, particularly during stagnant sort of January charts where they just have to. But yeah, in the, in the in the last episode they did just that, and also you know in the in the in the seventies and uh, and eventies to an extent they would have you know Lulu and Cliff, you yeah. know BBC stalwarts at the time. You yeah. know they they always found a way on, didn't they? So but we never liked it. we didn't like it then as pop crazy youngsters. We don't like it now as chart music no. podders. So it's not as if he's doing something completely new here. I think that's a bit no. a bit false. And also yeah. um, the band he's talking about there, Biss. This whole thing about them being unsigned. I mean, they had a record out, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, on yeah. it was on Chemical Underground. They're on an indie label. That's not the same I mean, it's it's semantic splitting hairs really, but you know, what's what's unsigned? Alright, they weren't signed to fucking Warner Brothers. But, you mm. know, they, they had a record out. You could go in a shop and buy it. There were just some peasants that he'd found busking <laughs> on the street and said, I will turn you into stars. Yeah, I mean it's much vaunted how Black's Hill got these supposedly renegade acts on top of the pops but it had always happened but yeah you started seeing people like Sterry Lab and Marquis Smith and, and things like that getting on top of the pops but it was notable for me from the off that those sort of supposedly unsigned they weren't unsigned acts um were always from a certain they were always from the indie world basically mm. the show got musical and it's not a good thing for top of the pops I don't think um, no. for it to just think of itself as a music show as just another adjunct to the rest of BBC's music shows. Yeah. So, yes, he gets interesting bands on, I guess. But conversely, the way he treats pop music, um, as opposed to indie guitar music and stuff, is it's all kind of boy bands and big stars. And mm. American stars always get beamed in, um, yeah. which isn't the same. Or, or the no. video gets shown. So I think he, he although he's, he's much praised Black Seal for what he did to Top of the Pops, so I think he, I, you know, I'd love By to... Who? Well, or the telly t- people. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, I, when I when I think about what's going on in the midnight, is is this the most exciting kind of um, non-chart material you could get get in there? No. But I should be remembering, surely, midnight is. I should be remembering amazing performances by Snoop Dogg or Missy or, mm. or some of these people that I was into at the time. Yeah. I don't. Wow. Yes. I remember. I remember that the, the supposed renegade acts where I was meant to be sat at home thinking, "Oh yes, these are our bands." Mm. Not really being that at all. No. So don't get me wrong. There were there were good things Black Seal did um, because he had to because what was going on before he became producer was in danger of killing the show. Yeah. Um, it was good that he got the DJs back, you know, rather mm. than that rotating kind of cast of kids presenters that seemed to be doing it before. It was good yeah. he got rid of the album charts. It was good he got rid of that breakers section. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, he gets the DJs back, but then he starts a celeb presenter thing, which seems yeah. to unmoor it from radio a bit, which isn't always a bad thing, as we saw in the past with Julian Cope. But, yeah, you know, um, I actually, although Black Seal's seen as the last good era by a lot of people, I see it's the start of the end to a certain extent. Um, yeah. It starts losing its its kind of universal reach, and 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 to, to be honest with you, 
I think it's start of the kind of messy chaos that Top of the Pops would continue to do um, until its end. I, I think it got unsure of itself, actually. There's a really notable thing throughout this episode, and I'm sure everyone else noticed it as well. That thing of the cheering and whooping that you constantly hear yeah. that has nothing to do with the music. It's always a dead giveaway that a party is dying when it has to be artificially boosted like that. It's yes. like the way modern performance cars play fake engine sounds through the car stereo. Yes. Um, because, you know, even though they've got electric engines and stuff. I see the start of the end here rather than some golden era. Um, yeah. these weren't what the fuck moments. Oh my God, it's Biss on top of the pops. It was more kind of, it just seems smug. Yeah, well, he went on to say, two years before I joined Top of the Pops, I was watching it and it was full of faceless dance bands. And I thought, that's the reason the show is going down the pan. There's no energy coming off that sort of music. There's no personalities involved and it's bland. I knew that people hadn't stopped making guitars because I was going out to gigs. But watching Top of the Pops, you'd have thought guitar music was dead. And I think there's nothing more exciting than seeing someone rip the fucking guts out of a guitar sometimes. Oh, for fuck's sake. Jesus Christ. No energy in dance music at all, is there? Get no energy off that. KLF, alternate. Yeah, Yeah, no personalities in in the prodigy or the shaman, is there? No. Fuck's sake. This entirely mirrors the kind of worst impulses in the music press at the time. Yeah. Oh, we need these big bands with quote-unquote characters in them who can be gobby. Well, hold on a minute. Why not give some of those dance people a chance to be gobby? I bet they would have been. And hip-hop, you've got an endless diet of gobby bastards. Um, But we never seem to get on the cover. You know, he might tart it up as, oh, yeah, guitars are still being made, guitar music. There's, I'm not no. saying he's a racist. I'm not saying that. But there's an underlying kind of proper music, let's get the yeah. proper characters back yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas, you know, when I think about the midnight, that's the thing about this. It's, it's the thing about when you, oh, when you were breaking down that issue of Melody Maker, five pages of fucking Oasis. Six, if you count the gig review. You know, and, and the thing is, the trouble is, for me, as a music fan, and this was the peak era of getting shit tons of music through the door as well. This was the slight changeover from getting tapes through the door to getting CDs through the door at this point. But, um, you know, there was so much good stuff out there. For me, the mid-90s was a golden era for music. Mm. And yet the magazine that I worked for was making it look like a, a, a wooden age for music. And, and yeah. you know, and it's a similar <laughs> thing going on with Top of the Pops. You know, there's all these kind of great dance records in there. Well, let's see these people. And you know that Dance Acts will put on a freakishly good show if, you know, given the chance. Mm. Far more than a, f- a few stumbly blokes with big sideburns yeah. doing the conventional band shape. So that's that quote's really revealing. It always does my head in when people go, oh, dance bands on top of the pops that were never interesting. It's like, well... You know, top of the pops of the late 70s and the early 80s, they seem to cope quite well with dance music. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I mean, obviously there's no legs and co nowadays. Yeah, but... I mean, there is something to it. We have looked at this before when, you know, it, it is true that top of the pops struggled to convey the excitement of dance music. But the fault of that mm. is on top of the pops. Mm. It's not on the music. Exactly. And this this is something, I mean, and it is also true that sales of smash hits uh, took a tumble in the late 80s. Uh, well, for two reasons. Partly because the pop stars that were coming through were your sort of stock aching Waterman puppets, but also because mm. uh, in terms of dance music, acid house and all that, it tended not to be very personality focused. So there is something to that. And it is true that Top of the Pop struggled. But yeah, it's up to people like Black Seal 
to make it work, not just to say, oh, well, I'll tell you what, we'll bring guitars in instead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the, the push yeah. behind all of this in that era was an attempt to make the show credible. And I don't think credible is something yeah. the top of the pop should be. Um, it should no. be, you know, it it, it is. It, top of the pops is what it is. It is, a, it is a show that should be dominated by the previous week's charts and what happened in that. Yes. And you can understand how in the mid-90s, Record companies were starting to look at Top of the Pops as not necessarily something they want to get their bands on that much or, or get their artists on because, you know, last week's charts are, are no longer important to record companies to a certain extent. And as the 90s go on, no. it becomes increased, you know, bands want to get on the national lottery more than they want to get on the charts. But um, I would say yeah. this focus on guitar music, it oddly does mirror exactly what's going on in the press. But all it needs is a journalist with fucking two brain cells stood together to go out, interview these bands, not these bands, rather these dance artists, and get their stories. They're people, they're interesting, and they've probably got a damn sight more interesting stuff to say than fucking two twats from Burnage. Mm. Do you know, it's interesting, uh, without wanting to spoil this episode too much, but we do get to the chart countdown, and whether Blacksill likes it or not, there is fuckloads of dance music yeah. in the yeah. charts, yeah, yeah, and there's absolutely. hardly any guitar music. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know what? It surprised me that um, the theme tune at this point even has a name. You said it's called Red Hot Pop. Yes, um, because <laughs> by it's Vince very, Clark. Vince Clark. It's uh, the the use of it is very short, isn't it? Well, it's um, a sting, isn't it? It's, it's not a even sting. A theme tune it's, now. So you've got lots of blue and orange things flying at you. You've got like a speaker cone, and you've got someone with headphones on, um, and someone holding up a shield. Uh, but it, yeah, it, it is like a little five second sting. It's it's almost as if Top of the Pops is embarrassed to have um, yes. a sort of a, a theme and, and be, you know, be a sort of show like, da-da, we're here. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's almost apologetic. Yeah, Top of the Pops almost seems like it's um, really there as a kind of like a, a trailer for Top of the Pops 2, which is far more credible. Um, yes. Top of the Pops is like the little baby's version. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, mm. I, I wanted to uh, talk about um, the little clip we do get of Prince Nassim at the start there as well. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is, uh, for a start, um, he doesn't say live and exclusive. He says live and exclusive. Yes. Because he's, <laughs> he's talking in MLE, multicultural London English, even though he's not from London. But yeah. um, Which I, I love, actually. I, I quite I, I liked it, uh, hearing that on top of the pops. I mean, nice about it. So he goes, it's uh, Prince and the Caliphs on top of the pops tonight. And yeah, you know, you mentioned he's got his world featherweight belt over his shoulder. I mm. thought it makes him look like um, he's halfway through getting dressed up as Russell Crowe in Gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he does this amazing thing. He poses side on and he sort yeah. of, um, he smoulders at the camera and he's holding a fucking gold microphone. Now, yes. I thought that was his own touch. Uh, no, no, and, no. It, and it would be like, uh, and that if it was his own touch, it would be a very Nas touch to have it would a gold. Be, leopard skin be more yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it turns out that the presenters, as we will find out, also have gold microphones. This is the golden microphone era, isn't it? The, yeah, yeah. When, when they brought in the celebrities. But your host tonight. Born in London in 1964, Steve Lamack studied journalism at Harlow College and went on to work as a junior sports reporter on the West Essex Gazette whilst editing the fanzine A Pack of Lies. He joined the NME in the 90s and was the first writer to interview Blur, Ride and Teenage Fan Club, but was best known for the interview with Manic Street Preachers where Richie Edwards carved for real into his arm. 
By this time, he had branched out into radio as a DJ on the pirate station Q102, which later became XFM, and he joined Radio 1 at the end of 1993, where he was teamed up with Joe Wyler, who was born in Northampton in 1965 and started her career presenting a local music show on BBC Radio Sussex before moving to Radio 4 to become a researcher on WPFM, their youth programme, with an F. When the co-presenters Gary Crowley and Terry Christian left, Wiley took over. After producing and presenting an indie show on BSB, she moved to Channel 4 to become a researcher for The Word before being picked up by Radio 1 and lumped together with Lamac for the evening session in Kid Jensen's old slot. At this point, they're still running the evening session together, although Wiley also has a side job on Saturday afternoons at Radio 1. They were given a trial run in presenting Top of the Pops in September last year, and this is their second go. Well, chaps, they're they're still chucking celebrities at Top of the Pops. Uh, This month has seen Louise Wenner and M&A have had a go, and they've also got Chris Eubank lined up for next month. But they Mm -hmm. appear to be at least trying to ease in more Radio 1 talent, and here we have, I suppose you could call them the Britpop, John Peel and Janice Long. (laughs) <laughs> you could do i mean uh, look it's it's been what 30 odd years now I, I think the duriger thing is that i should probably recant previous statements that i've made about everyone in the 90s no um, never well i said i said at the end of a, a cooler shaker review i think that, that the album made me want to go around joe wiley's house with suicide bombs strapped to my body <laughs> um which she's got kids it's not really fair that fundamentalism has gone for me now i, I would just crash a muck spreader into her concern Conservatory, but for yeah. me, both of them, Steve Lamac. I mean, look, Steve Lamac. I'm sure is a nice guy. People who've met him more times will tell me that repeatedly. Um, but for me, both of them sum up pretty much everything that was that was most appalling about the nineties, and everything that's most appalling about radio now, in particular Wiley, because I think she's proved horribly influential on the sort of Edith Bowmans and Fern Cottons of this world. Oh, yes. Which might, which might sound reductive, but it's, what I'm on about is that kind of mindless positivity. Mm. Um, oddly mirroring of the way that the music press was going at the time was, was Joe Wiley's stock in trade. Yeah. Um, if a musician started playing something, Joe Wiley would sit down next to them and earnestly nod with a Parker on, just, just <laughs> lost in this musician's genius. And that's always pissed me off. Yeah. Um, and Lamac, when I used to listen to the evening session with him... Um, he had this habit of saying something was going to completely rot your world and change your life and was going to come roaring out your speakers and it would be like being fist-fucked by the Incredible Hulk or something. <laughs> and then all that would come out was this weedy kind of pootling indie nonsense. Mm. So that kind of hyperbole is something that Zane Lowe's... Kick in the sun! <laughs> exactly. The kind of thing that Zane Lowe has made a career out of. The thing is with these two... I got no sense that even though there were DJs, there was no discernment, if you like. When I think of Nightingale and Peel and people like that, there was discernment. With Wiley, I never really got that. And, and by 96, by the time we find him in this episode, we're, we're now into the second wave of shit Britpop. We're into the kind of, yeah. you know, the really unpleasant big sideburn Britpop years. And um, yeah. an era in which we are being told by people like Lamac and Wiley that um, and, all, and all kinds of earnest movers and shakers that, you know, Echo Belly and Republica and Cast and The Verve were more deserving of our attention than what we were listening to, um, which mm. for me tended to be Eurobeat, 
and pop music and and hip hop. Um, yeah. So. For me, it's an era in which the foundations and blueprints of that kind of crucial retreat of nerve committed on our behalf by a shit-scared media start happening. And I don't see anything different with Lamac and Wiley. I blame them for a lot. In a great era for pop and Eurobeat, they disdained it. In a good era for rap, they preferred trip-hop. In a great era for metal rock music, they preferred the fucking stereophonics. And I, and I think... A big part of of the reason that I felt frustrated at Melody Maker and just generally frustrated in the mid-90s was, yeah, that thing. There was so much good music going on. I would very rarely get to hear it through either of these fuckers. Simon, um, Steve Lamack, a- NME. Yeah, well, you know, cards on the table. I like Steve Lamack. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I-, I also want to say straight up front, I love the fact that Neil isn't recanting, that he's sticking <laughs> to his guns. Um, the, the only thing he sort of uh, dialed back a little bit is his method of retribution. Um, but yeah, um, as, as a Melody Maker man, obviously I resented the phenomenon whereby enemy writers were fast-tracked into jobs at the BBC. Um, the effects of yeah. which are with me to this day. It's why, you know, I'm still fucking struggling to make a living and... Uh, talking to us cunts. Yeah, talking to you cunts. <laughs> but I couldn't... Um, begrudge Steve personally and we come from incredibly different places musically Um, he was once called the most indie man in Britain um, along with Simon Williams also of the enemy and um, he's waving the flag for indie here he's wearing a top I noticed from Elemental Records which is the little Mm. label that in 1996 was putting out records by Bivouac and Truman's Water um, which is really not my world really not my music but he's always been good to me personally. I've got to put that sort of disclaimer on anything I say. Um, he was very mm. helpful when I was writing my Mannix book. Um, he agreed to be interviewed about the Richie Edwards for real incident. Um, he gave me access mm. to the actual interview tapes from that night in Norwich. I've got to ask, Simon, were you jealous when you when you heard about that? Why didn't Richie do that in front of me? Um, no, uh, because <laughs> it was clear that Richie did it as a sort of statement of disgust that he was being asked insultingly reductive questions um because mm. that that was the whole point that you know um steve had this steve was coming from this place of indie cred and the manics were very right. flash and the manics mm. had signed to a major label and from mm. his perspective from steve Mack's perspective everything the manics were about was was somehow to be to be something to be suspicious of they were somehow fake mm. and he put that to them and fair play, he actually put it to them rather than stitching them up afterwards. And uh, it yeah. turned out that it was them that needed <laughs> stitching up. Ha, ha, ha. Um, yeah, so so no. Um, I, yeah, he was outside having a fag just, just white as a shit yeah. at, at what he'd seen. Fucking horrible thing to have had to witness. I Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so even from that point of view, I don't envy it. Um, obviously, I, I wrote plenty of, uh, sort of quite significant features about the Mannix myself. I can't really complain about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, mm. Steve was fucking brilliant, really helpful um, when I was sort of uh, doing a chapter on all that in my book. Um, and mm. he's had me on his radio show a couple of times. And even though we rarely overlap musically, I do believe he genuinely loves music. Yeah, yeah, now, I agree. I agree. I don't believe Joe Wiley genuinely loves music. Um, I've always reacted very negatively to her. And hearing Neil describe it as mindless positivity hits the nail on the head for me 
Um, my my mm. reaction to it is almost visceral. I'll say that because I think it was often that thing of not wearing shoes when she presented Glastonbury or when she presented her <laughs> Channel Four sh- show. Because I am the opposite of a foot fetishist. I'm the anti-Tarantino in that way. Um, but I just never believed she ever knew much about music. And when you gave that Gracie of her uh, broadcasting career there, it all fell into place because um, some of it was music based, a lot of it wasn't. Mm. Essentially, she's a media person. Yeah. A bit of a hack, yeah. really. She was, um, and she is on this episode, she is a presenter. Just a presenter, um, rather mm. than a DJ. Yeah. And that made her, um, uh, as Neil suggested, a very modern creature. Because that is now the norm. You know, uh, Obviously, mm-hmm. there are precedents for this. Noel Edmonds didn't love music. Dave Lee Travis <laughs> no. didn't love music. They were just yeah. presenters. No. And, you know, there will be some who will watch Steve Lamack here... And they will think he's shaking John Peel. Uh, fair enough. Um, <laughs> mm. But I think he's sincere in loving mm. the music he loves, which tended yeah. to be yeah. scrappy, scratchy indie music by white blokes with guitars. But Joe Wiley is no Janice Long. No, mm. no. You know, the music lover DJ is is something that I love. That can be a great thing. But but what it Wiley portrayed herself as that, but what it really meant was just this suffocating sycophancy to musicians and the total abandonment yeah. of any kind of critical faculty. I completely agree, Simon. I think um, Steve Lamatt always struck me as definitely somebody who knew what he loved in music and definitely had opinions about it. With Wiley, I blame her perhaps for too much, but you know that you know the whole sort of live lounge phenomenon yeah. of kind of mm-hmm. you know this that has now indirectly led to so many fuckers thinking acoustic cover as a suitable showcases for their talent i blame wiley for all of that i i blame wiley for that kind of that that's that sycophancy to musicians to the point where anyone making music must be applauded it's a good thing that they're making music it's better than they're not making yeah. music. and that's how wiley always came across just one caveat though to my i wasn't particularly slagging off lamac but perhaps there's something personal in this in as much as um a while back a video appeared on youtube of steve lamac reading an elegy for Britpop and um, this was left as a poem I think on the Word magazine website and he did somebody had asked him to read it out and he read it out over you know my tune style music and one of the lines was about and um, about singles reviews where Neil Kulkarni wrote about his girlfriend and I watched that and I was like (laughs) you fucking bastards that was Michael fucking Bonner not me as if I'd fucking write that so maybe there's a little bit of grievance there but I'm sure that's not Steve's fault um, that is bad, though. Yeah. Wow. But Wileys, you, you can see them everywhere now, and and uh, throughout BBC's music yeah. coverage, they're everywhere. Just this, just yeah, this is mindless positivity about music with no kind of discernment whatsoever. So I blame her for a lot. Hi, and welcome to the beast that is top of the pops. I'm Joe Wiley, and I'm Steve Lamack, and this is an anthemic start from Shed Seven. The Mac in a dark blue top with two gold stripes down the side and Wiley in a see-through dress with blue flowers over a bra top welcome us to the beast that is Top of the Pops and introduces to some anthemic stuff from the opening act, Shed 7 and Going for Gold. 
We've already covered Shed 7 in Chart Music 21, and this, their seventh single, is the follow-up to Getting Better, which got to number 14 in January of this year. It's the third cut from the LP A Maximum High, which isn't even out for another fortnight, and it's entered the charts this week at number eight, their highest chart placing ever, and here they are in the studio to rip the fucking guts out of a guitar. <laughs> well, yeah, Shed 7, we've already discussed them. I think we can wring some more juice out of them. But before that, let us nip a mere two years into the future. And an interview with the NME conducted by Stephen Wells, which goes as follows. The sad fact is that the sinister, out-of-touch and utterly evil London rock press think that Rick Witter is a boring bastard from a rubbish (laughs) band with a bollocks name. They think he is the soul-witheringly mediocre spiritual heir of Brian Adams. They think he's got shit hair. (laughs) And they think he stinks of piss. (laughs) This bloke was meant to be reviewing our single, and he said that he came up to York and saw me and was overcome by the smell of piss, snarls Rick. I do not smell of piss. Even if I did smell of piss, which I never do, I would immediately cleanse myself. Rick and Shed 7 drummer Alan Leach are sat in a London pub, sipping lager and killing time before the 5.30 train takes them back home to York. On your behalf, I sniff them gingerly. Neither of them, it has to be admitted, (laughs) smells particularly of piss. (laughs) I mean, it just wasn't needed, Storms Rick. He could have just gone, this is the new Shed 7 single, it's shit. That would have been okay. Ah, but maybe your alleged pissy smell was a metaphor for the shitness of your record? Yeah, well, but he got it wrong anyway because I didn't stink of piss. (laughs) Look, let's not get bogged down on this, pleads Rick. The point is that if you don't like a record, you should just say so. You shouldn't just say that the singer stinks of piss (laughs) because there's a lot of kids out there right now who think that I smell of piss. (laughs) The reviewer of that single, Neil Kulkarna <laughs> of Melody Maker. Well, I mean, look. Neil, the truth. The truth, right. Well, for... Did Rick Witter stink of piss? Yes. Yes, he did. I'm going to my, I'm gonna stick to my guns. Did he? I'd like to clarify one thing. I did not go up to York to see um, Shed 7. Um, no. I met Rick Witter, or I saw Rick Witter, as in his presence... Um, because I was studying in York in the early 90s. I went to uni there. Right. And I lived near the Round Trees Chocolate Factory, which was a nice place to live. And I started going to clubs mm. like Ziggy's and Toffs in, uh, in York. My favourite North Yorkshire clubbing experience, by the way, was in a club in Scarborough called Bacchus, um, <laughs> which had a dance right. floor the size of a dining table, a fantastic place. But I used to see Shed 7 doing that we're a local band, but we're a bit bigger than a local band now thing. Um, mm. going around to the clubs in York. And I used to see him get him a, a lot of attention. That particular singles review mentioned the time when I was in a club, I think it was Ziggy's, mm. and um, I went and stood near Rick Witter because I was wondering what all the fuss was about, why these people were thronging around him. Yeah, And yeah, he stank of piss. I'm going to stick to my guns there. Right. I mean, I know that I used the stinks of piss thing quite a lot at that time. I yeah. believe I said it about Joe Wiley as well, but I think I just said that she looks like she stinks of piss. Right. But... Um, <laughs> 
But, um, you know, the point is about saying that somebody stinks of piss. It's irrefutable legally. And um, the main thing is, yeah, just saying a record shit, that's not going to make a record review. You have to amplify and elaborate and use metaphors, etc. But he didn't metaphorically stink of piss. I recall him stinking of piss. And it wasn't before any wag chips in. It wasn't my top lip. It was him. Right. So you're saying about Bacchus that you won't dance in a club like this. All the (laughs) girls are slags and the band smell just like piss. (laughs) Too bloody right. They did. Shed seven. Fucking hell. I mean, you know, uh, it's a frequent motif for me throughout chart music that, um, you know, those pop stars who look like they stink. Um, Well, he's one of them. And he did. Because um, I had prior experience, but yeah, I didn't go up to York to see Shed Seven. No, um, he just happened to swim into the uh, the nightclub that I was in, and and, and I was glad waft into yeah, the club. And I was glad to verify that, and and well, I was glad to use that later um, in that particular. So if he um, if. If he offered to make you a sandwich... No, fuck no. <laughs> fuck no. It'd have yellow stains on it, man. No. <laughs> no. But the thing is, you know, I, I'd like to say, with Shed 7, I could attack it in that way. But in a way, looking back, this sort of music, you know, it won, in a way. It won whatever battle mm. was going on. Walk into a pub or a club in uh, you know 2021 or whatever <laughs> and you'll still be able to see bands doing shit like this um yeah and going for gold as a title revealed a lot um this was ultimately music that wanted to lodge itself in student memories like the final round in fucking blockbusters um mm. so but i mean it is a revealing performance you know the live singing thing had come in a few years previous in top of the pops Yes. A horrible mistake. You no, know, no, dear, it is an unseemly Jeez. thing to countenance it- in the shape of Shed 7, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's a horrible mistake to make him sing live. It reveals all it his is. limitations. So in that section where it kind of builds, there's a bit of a key change and he has to go for it. It's so singularly lacking in confidence and, and oomph, really. Um, but shit like this. Mm. I mean, the thing is about Shed 7 and bands like that. Um, and there were so bloody many of them that they, they, for me at the time, sort of reasserted how valuable the good stuff was. Because there were dozens of band like yes. the, the bands like this, but there was only one pulp or there was only one super furry animals. Whereas look at Shed 7 in this performance and that slightly piss takey gold suit he's wearing is a dead giveaway. It looks like they've got a tramp off the street at very short notice to fill in <laughs> for someone who was going to be Martin Fry on Stars in the Rise. Well, Martin Fry had the height, you see, whereas Rick Witter doesn't. Mm. Um, the the yeah. legs on this suit are way too long. Rick Witter's a short ass, so they all look wrinkled up. Um, you should have checked on these things. And you just think those trousers, are they gold or is it piss? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but the thing is... All- see, this is a wise move. They're, they're gold trousers. Yeah, yeah. See, he's, he's not he's not wearing grey trousers, which is the you know the cardinal <laughs> error made by someone prone to pissing themselves. Yeah, yeah. no sensible thinking. Yeah. Oh, that bit of copy you read out though really makes me miss Stephen Wells a lot. But all of, the thing yes. is, all of these Bless looks, him. all of these sounds that you're hearing from Shed Seven, these were getting absorbed by tiny minds, and they would wreak damage for years to come. We're still living mm. with the damage that bands like Shed Seven wrought in a way. Um, yeah, yeah. Simon, in you come. Well, I've been in the presence of Rick Witter twice, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, on neither of those occasions, as far as I recall, did he stink of piss. But that doesn't mean... See, that, that doesn't prove that he didn't stink of piss when yeah. Neil was yeah. near him. Yeah. Um, the first time I remember being near him, I was um, 
walking around Portobello Road Market, Portobello Market in uh, West London, and um, I was looking through a clothes store, and I realised there was a guy stood near me trying on a pair of trousers. So he'd actually taken his own trousers oh, off. No. He, yeah, he'd taken his own trousers off, so he's down to his kex, oh, yeah. and he's trying on. Is he wearing a tenner? He's tra- <laughs> well... <laughs> He was, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. He was, <laughs> he was wearing a kind of uh, see-through adult nappy that was like s- swimming in piss. No, um, uh, <laughs> no, he was him and Roachford. They could make a fucking killing doing adverts for um, that shit now, couldn't they? And Fergie, Fergie, man, I'm Fergie, yeah. So, um, yeah, he was trying on this pair of multicoloured stripy trousers Ooh. that looked like a jester, oh. and I. I I, re- I really judged him on that. I I thought if you know if he didn't literally stink a piss, then his taste in clothing <laughs> did. Um, and then um, decades later, in fact, about four or five years ago, I actually interviewed him. Um, it was uh, it was backstage at a festival in Yorkshire where Shed Seven were the headline act, right. and uh, I was doing a bit of work. There, there was a, a festival TV station, and whoever. Uh, lumbered interview backstage. I just had to grab him mm. for an interview, and, and there he was, perfectly nice bloke, you know, uh, as they always are. Yeah, they always are nice blokes, yeah. or nearly always, you know. Um, Neil's completely right about the, uh, the the effect they had musically, and we're still living with to this day. I don't know which writer it was. It might have been Andrew Harrison who coined the phrase "landfill yes. indie," but I think Shed Seven are very likely the year zero of. <laughs> landfill indie they are the patient zero that you know the first tin thrown onto the ground of the first tin yeah yeah um is, is shed seven um steve lamack says uh, uh, an anthemic start from shed seven and he does a little smile does lamack mm. because this is his music yes. and it's actually his doing but he championed them early you on contribute if that's your fucking anthem <laughs> well now here's the thing right you correctly point out the suit a gold suit used to mean ABC yes. used to mean absolute dazzling and that Elvis. Hmm. Yeah. And they've got a horn section. A horn section on top of the pops used to mean Dexies. Yes. Right? And this shows how far we have fallen that it now means this. And I kept listening to this song, and I don't really remember it from the time. Um, and I started thinking, when does the anthemic bit happen? Yeah. When? Like, oh, I thought, okay, you know, some songs can have an anthemic chorus. But the verse that gets you there is a bit nothingy, but it just never happened. Yeah. And um, the weird thing about first of all, it's two weird things. First of all, this was a top ten hit, mm. which yes. I don't know if that's just a quirk of the fact that Britpop was so huge that a moderately uh, well liked indie band could get in the top ten just like that. But the lyrics, for fuck's sake, it goes, "You took the words right out of my mouth," which is taken straight out of Meatloaf's mouth. Mm. Um, they play their guitars in that really shitty indie way where their hands hardly even touch the strings. Yeah. <laughs> They're just sort of drifting their hands up and down. The blokes, because uh, the rest of the band are standard indie blokes in black. Yeah. They, yeah. they look like they're just kind of vaguely thrilled to be there. <laughs> They've got no charisma to them at all. No. And, and even Rick Witter, or as the press cruelly called him at the time, and I, I may have been part of that cruelty, <laughs> Rick Fuck Witter. Um, <laughs> He's, you know, you can dress him up in a gold suit. You can hand him a pair of maracas to shake, which he does here. It's mm. a polished but turd, isn't it? He's got no dynamism. The song has no dynamism. Yeah, it's the most half-arse maraca shaking I've ever seen, man. And I've yeah. seen Ian Brown. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and 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 Lamac makes a little joke about that as he outros it. He says, "Shaking the Earth's core tonight on top of the pops." 
fuck me. If if the Earth's core was shaken like that, we wouldn't be here now because there was just acres and gallons of that shit knocking around at yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really very poor. The weird thing about Shed Seven is they are now they are bigger now than they ever were at the time. Mm. They were mm. they were moderately big at the time. They become this thing that because they keep plugging away um, and they play all those kind of uh, uh, those those festivals called things like oh god, what are they called? Like like. Um, they probably live forever, or yeah, yeah. yeah. They yeah, they, yeah. they play like all these kind of like cool Britannia festivals or whatever they are, including uh, including the one that, that so I, I the, interviewed. They're the at. tremolos <laughs> of their age. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They just kept on going. Yeah, and uh, so they can now fill Brixton Academy at the drop of a hat, or probably three nights run in. Um, they can headline festivals, and it's it, it's it's a weird sort of. Um, Anomaly in the industry. It's a weird little tale in itself. If, as long as you don't have to listen to their music, yeah. and like I say, mm. seems like a perfectly nice bloke. But fucking hell, you know what he did and what his band did led on to things like scouting for girls and all yeah. of that shit that yeah. clogged up mm. the noughties and clogged up the twenty tens and is still with us to this day. Yeah. So it can yes. do one as far as I'm concerned. The reason bands mm. like that still going, they they do keep plugging away. I mean, what's being sold essentially is nostalgia. I doubt anyone's sitting around yeah. listening to Shed Seven's albums and recovering what musical geniuses they were. But people want to feel feel if they're in their mid forties, they want to feel like they did when they were young. Um, so so they'll yeah. buy tickets for shit like that. Um, but that that Lamac phrase at the end really got to me. That and then shaking the earth's core. That kind of jokey enemy type hope hyperbole really used to piss me off. And um, mm. and still does. And the odd thing is with this record, Going for Gold, it is their best. That's <laughs> This is as good as Shed 7 get. <laughs> so the following week, Going for Gold dropped 12 places to number 20. The follow-up, Bully Boy, would only get to number 22, but they'd have two more top 20 hits this year making them the most prolific chart band of 1996. What? What? Yes. Fucking hell. They had more hits this year than any other band. Jesus. Fucking hell. Hello, I'm Jack Beaumont. I do Crime Club. In Series 1, I spoke to people like this. Did you not kick a policeman in the head? Yeah, that was... When was that? I was 17. Wait, was I 17 or 19? I think it might have been 19, actually. In Series 2, I talked to people like this. There was a paedophile with one leg. I kicked him clean out his wheelchair. About four of us, I mean, we battered him. And this. Cheated on your boyfriend to give him gonorrhea? Do you want to go there or would you rather not? Yeah, no, 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 I could talk about it. I have jingles like this. That's Crime Club, where strange people tell stories involving bad behaviour. New episodes out every Monday. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Shaking the Earth's core tonight on Top of the Pops, we have two exclusives from Lionel Richie and world featherweight boxing champion Prince Nassim. Plus we have garbage and menswear. But first, cracking America, yes really, mingling with the rich and famous and how our friends in the north, Oasis. 
The match continues to shield the bill of fear for tonight, while Wiley tells us that the next act are playing in America and mixing with the rich and famous, which is something bands have never done before, and then gets in a plug for a recent BBC drama as she introduces Don't Look Back in Anger by Oasis. Formed in Manchester in 1991, Oasis are fucking Oasis. This is their ninth single, the fourth cut off the LP What's the Story Morning Glory and the follow-up to Wonderwall, which got to number two for one week in November of 1995, held off the top spot by I Believe by Robson and Jerome. It made its first appearance on Top of the Pops on February the 22nd, three days after it was released, where they followed it up with a performance of Come On, Feel the Noise, making them the first band to play two songs on an episode of Top of the Pops since the jam in 1982. A week later, it entered the chart at number one, usurping Spaceman by Babylon Zoo, but was immediately knocked off the top by this week's number one. This week, it's spending its second week at number three. And because the band are in Dublin, where the news of the world are currently stalking their hotel with Nolan Liam Gallagher's father in the hopes of a reunion, (laughs) after they set up a phone line where you could listen to a phone conversation between Liam and his dad, with the former threatening to break the latter's legs, we're getting a repeat of a month-old performance. Why? Why is this even happening? This is last month's number one. Because they're, because they're Oasis, man. They're... I mean, Neil, you know, we've come across this phenomenon before when uh, when they had Craig David mm. back on again in 2000. But this is, this is a song that's been at number three for its second week. What the fuck is going on here? <laughs> it's a, a music lover's show now. Didn't, didn't you hear the memo? Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, yeah. It's like BBC News now going, oh, you know what? Fucking coronavirus again. Sick of that. Let's let's um let's talk about that royal wedding that everyone liked. <laughs> it's not right, man. Top of the pops is dead to me now. <laughs> this fucking song is probably one of my. I mean, it probably is my least favourite song ever. And talking about things to recant Ooh. from the past, as I have about Joe Wiley slightly. Um, I know with most bands, even the ones that you hate, there's this rule whereby you will love one of their songs. Um, with Oasis. Mm. That is not the case for me. As soon as I hear even a second of their music, I want to vomit. And I wish mm. these enemies of beauty nothing but misery for the rest of their days. And, and that extends to all their fans. Hate this band. I mean, I don't know whether Pricey needs to come in before I just go off on one. No, please take the floor, Neil. Go for it. Um, well, I mean, for me, you know, it, it's odd. In recent years, we've seen an awful lot of bullshit written about how, um, you know, the 90s were all about Oasis and Nirvana, and it was about attitude coming back. Mm. For me, my memories of this era and thinking about this era now is that, you know, definitely maybe and things like that and Oasis... It meant the cunts taking over. Mm. It meant it meant the proper homophobic, mildly racist lads taking over. It meant the rejection of puffiness stylistically and the reassertion of the kind of English rock defence leagues <laughs> tiny minded <laughs> ideas. They're tiny minded ideas about real proper music. So it, it just sees rock regressing into this pure soulless pastiche. It also means in this period a cowardly craven press surrendering any critical standpoint in fear of this supposed consensus. Mm. National broadcasters and publishers boosting the lads, the coked up and the Larry. And and 
deeper than that. It meant a reassertion of quite racist and sexist music stereotypes and snobbery. Um, beyond that, sorry, it enabled also a middle-class media, uh, to a certain extent, to homogenise its ideas about what counted as working-class yes, art. Yes, yeah. Ever since then, ever since the 90s, when I've slagged off Oasis or The Roses or any of those bands, I've had it back, oh, you must take the working classes, as if this is all the working classes can do, exactly, this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean... I would use Oasis if I was teaching a lesson about the 90s. I would use them, mm. but not in a kind of this is how good things got kind of way. But, but this is definitively 90s. In a, it celebrates the mediocre so long as it's um, arrogant. And, it, and it's this yeah. cultural environment. And as long as it's successful. Yeah, and as long as oh, it has to be successful, of course. It has to have hundreds of thousands of, of um, zeros attached to all the figures attached to it. It's, it. You know, it creates this cultural environment in which anyone can be, I think this is the start of the word, the start of the overuse of the word iconic and legendary around right about this period. Because anyone can be iconic and legendary, seemingly in the 90s, so long as you just tediously and endlessly assert the fact. So long as you just keep saying that you're, you know, a rock and roll band. So, yeah, I'm not going to celebrate this fucking hoax this con job, this cowardice, and, and this essentially a triumph for reactionary conservatism. And beyond anything else, the shitty music, the fucking utterly shit music. I'm not going to celebrate this in, in any way. I've always fucking hated Liam Gallagher, perhaps more than any other British pop figure in the past two decades. There was something I read, I mean, beyond all the homophobic shit that he's come out with over the years, which is unforgivable and disgraceful. I remember reading him, um, about Adam Ant, and it was a comment that really summated a lot of things. He said, um, Adam and the Ants, no, I'm not into a geezer who wears makeup, especially fucking nutty ones. Yep, yep, that's absolutely oh, it. You know, doubtless he thinks British pop history would have been better entirely populated by these sort of gurning, faux simpleton, fake lads wearing um, smart casual dad's clothes. Um, but mm. he's just a fucking charmless, thick as shit cunt, and I wish he'd fuck off and die. I've never seen mm. either of those brothers as kind of, you know, the witty characters that they are frequently seen as. But, but yeah, they are definitive of the 90s, because if you just say that you rock and roll often and drearily enough, it makes you iconic. And if you're half wit, it's this kind of, you know, there's frequently moments where I listen to Oasis records, and I just think, is, honestly, are you... Th- it, that larceny, that theft, that laziness, it, mm. it, you really think that'll do? And they do mm. think that'll do. And clearly an awful lot... And it did. Yeah, and it did. An awful lot of music fans thought it'd do as well. And if that's admitted, then any kind of pastiche is okay. And, you know, it's this admission of, of a kind of general a bit shitness that you can't be as good as the past, but you can sort of innocently thieve it a little bit. This kind of attitude that's yeah. scruffed up like factory-damaged jeans. So, for me, Oasis, they're the Chris Evans of music. And if you like Ooh. them, you must despise pop music. They're the single artist, the single band, rather, that most sums up all I most detest in rock and pop music over its entire history. I know it's common to say now, oh, yeah, but those early singles, come on, they were undeniable. Nope, sorry, they have always, for me, made the most revoltingly lumpen conservative sound in music um yes they absolutely are iconic and legendary and if you like them you and their fucking rubbish music and those kinds of adjectives um deserve each other you cunt um they're an appalling band <laughs> and and you know especially in recent years one thing i've noticed creeping into noel gallagher's um quotes 
Um, now that he's moneyed up and he's sending his kids to posh schools, um, mm. there's a definite tinge of kind of uh, racism and Brexitiness yeah. in in what he's mm. been saying about his schooling, uh, about the schools that he's sending his kids to. How he does, he'd rather his kids hung around with Russian oligarchs all day than came home sounding like Ali G. Oh. And how he doesn't want to send them to school where there's metal detectors on the doors. <laughs> and how he fucking loads hip hop and he doesn't think Jay Z should headline Glastonbury. All of these things. Mm. Um, and he doesn't like reading, and he doesn't like jazz, and he's just, Oasis for me have always just been a celebration of stupidity um, and conservatism, and yeah, I, the sound of a door slamming <laughs> shut. Well, for me, they are they're, they're, they're kind of it's weird because they're one of the biggest bands of the nineties. For me, they're they're the nadir of the nineties. So watching various England, videos of England fans over the years adding to their repertoire of fuck the IRA and ten German bombers with Oasis songs is very revealing to me. Um, much as it was the other day when I saw some cunt in a fucking multicolored Harlequin style suit leading a um, a, a street long sing along at the eight along uh, eight o'clock clap at, clap for the NHS. Um, of Don't Look Back in Anger revealed oh. a lot to me as well. It is that kind of national anthem, and I fucking hated it then, and I hate it now. I mean, Simon, how much to the fault can be uh, lumped on the music press for Oasis? A fair amount can be lumped. They were hyped up to fuck at the beginning. I remember when their first album came out, they got a cover on Q, and the tagline was words to the effect of, here they are, the band you've all been waiting for. <laughs> and it's like, really? Mm-hmm. Them? I think Neil made a really important point about the homogenisation of um, the way the working class were seen and depicted um, in, the, in the media around this time. And it was entirely down to Oasis. Mm. I, in fact, I remember a thing Neil wrote because uh, Noel had said something like, I'm writing songs for the guy who's going to the local newsagents to buy his 10 Benson Hedges. And Neil wrote, fuck off, I'm that guy, you're not writing songs for me. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is the awkward truth about Oasis and about their media cheerleaders, is that um, it suited the predominantly white, male, very middle class, very southern music press to imagine Mm. that uh, Oasis represent the true uh, proletariat or the lumpen proletariat, if you like, of Mm. the UK and that... um, Anyone who diverges from that stereotype just isn't proper, properly working class. Um, and that, that even goes back to that Melody Maker front cover that you mentioned earlier on. Uh, where what's, what's the headline? What's the uh, thing on the front again? It's like, are you looking at me, pal? Is that it? Mm, it's this yes. imagined idea. That's not a quote, you know. It's just because you've got a picture of uh, Noel looking a bit sort of chippy and uh, we're meant to think, oh, yeah, you know, he's this tough street fighting northerner fuck off apart from anything else yeah. Oasis are really soft I will defend that to the death that they are yeah. fucking soft they're just pretending to be hard like the mm. one time that um, Liam started acting hard in Germany in, fr- in front of a bunch of fucking management consultants out on a jolly or something he got the shit kicked out of him didn't he do you remember that <laughs> um, but yeah happened in Milan as well I, didn't I, I despise this idea that uh, the working classes of Britain are not allowed to a have consume and b create things of beauty, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. we're not allowed to be poncy or arty or well-read. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying that mm-hmm. I grew up in a terraced house in South Wales with fuck all money, single parent. Uh, we didn't have a car. We didn't have a telephone. Um, uh, a lot of the time, we didn't have a TV because it kept having to be set, sent back because we couldn't afford it and all this kind of shit. Um, 
you guys, you're from the Midlands, you're right, you're not from the north, but you're not part of that London or that southern bubble. So you know, no. you know as well as I know, how fucking mendacious that is, that idea that yeah. everyone oh, yeah. in the north or any, everyone from sort of a working class area is like, like those cunts, right? And uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's really important uh, in order to disprove that to be able to point to counterpoints, to, um, to, to examples who do diverge from that. And conveniently enough, um, and we've already mentioned them in this episode, Manic Street Preachers, right? The Manic Street yeah. Preachers mm-hmm. are as, if not more, working class than Oasis. But they educate themselves. They were proud of their learning. They put quotes from literature and philosophy all over their record sleeves. They started their biggest hit at the point that it came out with the line, libraries gave us power. And you get these dicks, mm. the Gallagher's, boasting about not reading books and could i just chip in there sorry yeah. pricey yeah the direct quote from noel booksellers book readers book writers book owners fuck all of them exactly and you know the the media lapped that up they because yeah. there's nothing yeah. the southern uh, middle class media love more than a bit of rough the illicit thrill they get from a bit of rough yeah. and that's mm-hmm. what oasis yeah. represented by the way you can go on uh, google earth and look at the fucking suburb that they came from. Yeah, I'm sure it had its social <laughs> problems, and I'm sure they didn't have much money. They've got a lovely big leafy street with big front gardens, yeah, big yeah. back gardens. Do me a fucking favour, you know. Just because <laughs> they talk, it's like it's like Jess Phillips. Everyone thinks that just because she talks in a regional accent, she's got to be properly salt of the earth working class. Her fucking mother ran the NHS in the Midlands. You know, that's 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 an eighty grand a year job. I mean, the music press—they lumped on the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays a few years previous. So that was the beginning of this, yeah. Mm. Both yeah. of those bands fucked up. Uh, here's a band who uh, are not going to fuck up, and you know, you, you just had Oasis rammed up your ass right from the off. Yeah, and there was a trade-off, right? A lot of people who should have known better, who did know better, people of my age and slightly older. Um, decided, you know what, we may have grown up listening to, I don't know, um, The Fall or Echo and the Bunny Men or you know, any of these kind of vaguely cerebral indie bands, but we're going to sort of brush all that away and, uh, and, and pretend that, that we're never into that stuff and what we really want is something that sounds like the most reductive idea of, of what the Beatles were mm. because mm. it seems to be popular, it seems to be what the kids like. So I saw people of, of my age suddenly sort of wearing um you know the best uh, minds of my generation the best minds of my <laughs> the the best the best torsos of my generation uh, wearing uh, vintage adidas and mm. all all that, all that kind of stuff and, and just just pretending to be something they weren't because it was like if you can't beat them join them and it seemed to be popular and the amount of times in my work i had to go and review oasis gigs and they quite oh. often happen at wembley and you get out of wembley park station and you'd walk up uh, bobby moore way and there'd be all these fucking dicks doing the sort of crap themselves, bandy-legged <laughs> walk up towards the stadium or, 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 or the arena. And they'd be wearing those fucking uh, wicketkeeper hats or mm-hmm. fisherman's hats, whatever you want to call it. And they, too, are pretending to be this this idea. Uh, you know, because they've all come from fucking, I don't know, Roehampton or something. <laughs> but they're, but they're, they, they, are, they are pretending to be lads, lads, lads. Yeah, yeah. And mm. because of that, because that is now, A, all the working class are allowed to be, and yeah. B, what we're supposed to aspire to, it's the, you know, the very limit of what we can aspire to. That is yeah. why, for me, Oasis are the, and I'm not exaggerating, 
the most malignant and damaging force in British popular culture of the last 30 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree completely. As I said at the time, I think Oasis give you rickets. <laughs> but it's interesting that you mention Happy Mondays. Let's, I mean, Happy Mondays, yes, genuinely, properly working class band. But look how mm. weird their fucking music was. How liquid yeah. and funky and strange and complex it was. And also think yes. about Sean Ryder's lyrics. I mean, these were yeah. amazing, amazing lyrics. Um, mm. The lyrics to Oasis records. I mean, this is a perfect example, this one. For starters, you can get no meaning from them. So don't bother looking for any meaning. But they're just mm. pitched at that, that kind of mix of phrases that clearly Noel Gallagher has overheard that he thinks are clever. Yeah. Like, don't look back in yeah. anger from the play, from the John Osborne play. Um, mixed in yeah. with just a load of shit about sliding away. It always seemed to be about sliding away from him and staying in bed. And they're mm. just remorselessly unpoetic unimaginative shit lyrics um coupled with this lumpen awful music I, oh. you know it's oreo speedwagon without a decent guitar solo what isn't is it? it it's i mean i don't want to say roadie rock i like some roadies but i mean it's lumpy <laughs> joyless just un- and totally sexless music it's just mm. revolting oh god yeah you know no, you're absolutely right to talk about the lyrics. Slip inside the eye of your mind. It's got to be one of those embarrassing yeah. opening lines. Yeah. It's embarrassing. And yeah, just this sort of lazy jamming together. So don't look back in anger. You've got um, Don't Look Back, the Bob Dylan documentary, and mm. Look Back in Anger, the play, of course. Then you've got like, they're quoting, a, you know, you start a revolution in your head. So that's like a Beatles book, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So they're fucking yeah. laying it on so Start a revolution from my bed, he says. That's right. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. sorry. Right. Oh, so, yeah, but it is clearly because revolution in the head had just come out, hadn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so there's all of that going on, and, and a lot of people say, "Oh, who cares? It's just pop music. Who cares about the lyrics?" Well, all right, fine. Uh, and to your point, I, I can go along with that. And I suppose, in some ways, demonstrably, what they do works because they write these melodies that have those kind of descending triplets, like na 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 na, na, na which is a thing that you know everyone's like, fucking Bowie did it. Mm, Bowie did, mm. did it loads. Circa uh, mm. Ziggy Stardust. George Harrison was a big one for that, and it's just mm. you know a, a fairly easy way of uh, giving a. Um, a phrase in music, a little bit of an emotional tug at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so they had that going on. I, I remember Taylor writing a review of them live where he talked about this kind of just this hurricane force that you feel at their gigs, whether you like them or not, you just got mm. s- sort of swept away, steamrolled by this kind of uh, back and forth between the band and, and the audience. And I, I can kind of see that, but what, but what does it give us? Where does it get you? It's just, it's, there's fucking nothing to it at all. <laughs> and the, the, the first, the first thing you see in this clip, by the way, is the drummer's ass, and I think that is so telling because it is just a load of ass. You've got, and oh, even visually, the signifiers. You've got um, Noel with his uh, little Lennon shades on. You've got Liam um, sitting at the piano, <laughs> prodding at a fucking piano with single fingers like he's doing chopsticks, but at a grand mm-hmm. piano. He's also wearing the little Lennon glasses. It's so fucking desperate. Um, yeah. You've got Bonehead there, by the way, which is um, the second sighting tonight of someone wearing an outdoor coat indoors. Britpop yes. was the movement that wouldn't feel the benefit <laughs> when it stepped outside. Um, and and then you've got um, Noel with his big fucking Brexit guitar. The big yes, old Brexit yeah. guitar. Yeah, yeah. And you look at it and you see it's it's a really bad paint job. <laughs> I mean, the St. Patrick's Cross has been put slap bang in the middle of the St. Andrew's Cross, probably because whoever did it wasn't sure what the right way up the right. jack was yeah. and just isn't taking any chances. But you look at it and you go, oh, actually, that's really shit. But this the was, symbolism, it was really that- shit anyway. It was just like, oh, look, let's pretend to be the who. 
Well, that's it. The, 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 the symbolism of the Union Jack in popular culture is an interesting thing that's kind of shifted over time. Mm, and, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the 60s with the Kinks and the Who, it seemed to have this kind of slightly almost subversive optimism to it. It, yeah. it, it wasn't at that point poisoned by uh, uh, feelings of kind of uh, racial uh, white supremacy or any of that. Mm. That kind of that feeling crept in more in the 70s. But then you had the jam trying to reclaim that whole sort of 60s thing again. Yeah. But then when Morrissey... Uh, waves it around at Finsbury Park, and of course, what we know now about Morrissey, we were, you know, people were quite right to be very, very dubious about what his motivations were. Mm. Nevertheless, uh, on the face of it, the only evidence that enemy were really willing to present was that he was waving around the Union Jack. And what, two, three years later, you got these cunts with a massive <laughs> fucking Union Jack on their guitar, and no one bats an eyelid. You've got Jerry Halliwell in a Union Jack dress at the Brits, and suddenly it's all, yay, cool Britannia, and nothing yeah. sinister about it at all. Um, and it turns out that, you know, um, Gallagher's pretty Brexity, Jerry Halliwell's pretty Brexity. Yeah. Neil is absolutely right to call out um, the, their racism. Uh, we can all point at the uh, famous remarks Noel made about having Jay-Z... Um, or yeah. um, mm. Stormzy uh, headlining Glastonbury. Um, they are massive, massive homophobes. I'm not going to let them off the hook about that. I was present at the Q Awards when uh, Liam started shouting queer, queer to Robbie Williams when he went on stage and mm. lesbian, lesbian to Kylie Minogue. And by the way, the fact that... Um, Neither of those are queer or lesbian is really not the point. It was no. that was that was his go to insult for people that he didn't like was queer and lesbian. There's plenty more examples, plenty more proof of their homophobia. Matter of fact, I was commissioned by a major, major national newspaper about a year ago to write an article about this stuff, about Oasis and their homophobia. Um, mm. strangely they got cold feet and bottled out and spiked that <laughs> article now right. um, I'm not ruling out that piece appearing uh, online uh, at some point soon so that's something to look forward to um, but yeah they, they just didn't like anything remotely puffy they, they, they were very dodgy when it came to black music and black people as we've now found out and he, um, Noel in particular is a pull the ladder up cunt he's one of those ones mm. uh, because you know, for all their much vaunted working class background, he thinks that, uh, and never mind Jeremy Corbyn, he who he called a communist, he thought Ed Miliband was, in his words, a fucking communist. Ed Miliband! <laughs> because, yeah, heaven forbid, heaven forbid anybody should want to redistribute oh, any wealth. He's the Jimmy Tarbuck of Manchester, isn't he? <laughs> in summary, fuck them. They're the worst thing to happen in 30 years. And yeah. uh, anyone who likes... No, I'm not going to say anyone who likes me as a cunt because I know some lovely, lovely people who are Oasis fans, but they are misguided. <laughs> I've heard my, my feelings about Blur many a time and often on, on chart music. But I remember when I moved back to Nottingham about 15 years ago, I'd go out or have to go out to, to see local bands. Mm. And... 80% of them were Oasis clones. Yeah. They'd have the kind of publicity shot where it looked like they were standing outside of Weatherspoons on a Tuesday morning. And I just thought, fucking hell, if only there were a few more bands wanted to be Blur instead of Oasis, perhaps we'd well, have, you know, but, but perhaps things would have been better back then. I mean, we just said that Shed 7 um, unbelievably exerted an influence. Just think about the damage that this fucking band yeah. did. Oasis. And well, the thing is... I must admit, at the time, I was casting around, trying, you know, I, in 1996, I was basically trying to call everyone a racist. But, um, you know, <laughs> the, the, the Union Jack guitar didn't help. But you can't really go from that to racism. But I've, I've, I, 
I've been proved right over the years about this stuff. I mean, mm. a lot of us have been proved right. But not only quotes from Noel, but yeah, um, it's odd when you look back because now when I look back, it's like Pricey mentioned uh, Morrissey. Now when I listen back to say Panic, I hear a race hate anthem in yes. a way, you know. And in this music, um, fatally, Oasis won Englishness back for the for the non fay and the non puffy and the charmless fundamentally and we've been seeing it on yeah. stages nationwide ever since yeah. and it's not like there weren't any other options all right the manics were in hiatus at this point uh, but jarvis cocker was around yeah he's yeah, a yeah. fucking working class northerner and he's fucking clever and you know funny and a bit puffy and you know it's so, you know sorry journalists is is that is he not proly enough for you is he not yeah. enough of a fucking stereotype because he's not swaggering towards you like doing that kind of come on things with his, with his hands yeah. like yeah. offering you out for a fight is that not real enough for you Piss and when he off. swears you can't you can't write it as f double o k yeah yeah all of that um I, talking about their influence uh, there was a thing just the other week uh, on on the bank holiday monday where Radio X did their annual Best of British, <laughs> where they they asked their readers, uh, readers, well, they asked their listeners to vote for this kind of countdown of the 100 best British songs ever. And four out of the top 10 were by Oasis. 17 out of the top 100 were by Oasis. And a massive chunk of the rest of it was, it might as well have been Oasis. Mm. And um, I, I do wonder, though, actually looking at the rest of that list, if Shed 7 haven't also exerted... A, a massive influence on that. And bands like the fucking Cortinas and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and I know in some ways it's um, it's not exactly news. It's, it's Dog Bites Man that people who listen to a lad's guitar radio station like lad's guitar music. Mm, but nevertheless, mm. it was the most depressing thing I've ever read. It, it, was, it was like, basically, if you wanted to find out what the worst British music ever is, look at what Radio <laughs> X listeners think the best British music ever yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. And talking about Oasis being in lots of lists, I mean, this week in the charts, all nine Oasis singles are in the top 100 this week. Fuck they've, they've re-released them all, like when the jam split up and when Michael Jackson died. But but it needs noting, right, that the, the trouble is with looking back, especially from this vantage point, is the 90s are getting, have been rewritten. In anger. Well, fucking in, in a lot of fucking anger, to be honest with you. But, I mean, you know, the 90s have now been re- rewritten as Oasis's decade. It just needs lodging somewhere that there are an awful yeah. lot of us who fucking hated them from the off. Yes. You know, and we were there. We might not have um, ended up um, dominating the cultural landscape for the past 20-odd fucking years, but there were dissidents to this. The 90s were not just this. There was so much great shit going on. Oasis, uh, one of the worst yeah. bands of this period. Yeah, I mean, essentially, people did want it to be the 60s again. So, therefore, there had to be a Beatles and yeah. the, the general consensus in the media was, oh, they'll do. Let's lump on them. Well, I do think Britpop was the first musical movement in this country uh, t- that was entirely looking backwards. Mm. Mm. Um, and you, yeah, you're absolutely right that, that it needed a Beatles and people were just gagging for that to happen. Yeah. And it, it, be- it became self-fulfilling. I was instantaneously suspicious of Britpop for precisely that reason. Because when something looks back like that, and it only looks back like that, you have to wonder mm. what dreams are being reanimated here. What are, they, what are they clicking their heels together and wanting to vanish back to? And fundamentally, mm. what they're wanting to vanish back to is time in an odd way where um, white British music was made by bands completely influenced by black American music. 
Um, and yet you know and yet the music that they vanished themselves back to absolutely wasn't that Um, so you know the 60s can mean a lot of things for a lot of people but um, if yeah I think they got that era completely wrong in a sense yeah of course we've got to we've got to mention the obvious nick of imagine at the beginning which was you know clearly oh you think we're ripping off the Beatles well fuck you yeah. But it also <laughs> serves to mask the even more blatant Nick, which is so Sally can wait, pretty flaming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, that kind of brazenness became part of their shtick. Yeah. Um, that it's the same thing Robbie Williams would exploit later mm. on in the nineties, and, and hence them becoming friends. I'm guessing that that just yeah, we're getting away with it. Mm. Yeah, we're getting away with it. That kind of brazenness, that cheek, that arrogance. You know, arrogance is unjustified confidence. They had no... Noel Gallagher's musical abilities gave him no right to call himself a rock star. But by that time, it was enough for the idiots, their boosters in the press anyway. Yeah. Um, that if somebody was just cocky enough, that was enough. Mm, I'm not sure. Anything else to say? No, fuck them. Fuck them forever. Fuck them to hell. So the following week, Don't Look Back in Anger dropped five places to number eight. The follow-up, Do You Know What I Mean?, went straight to number one in July of 1997, knocking I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy off the top and staying there for one week before giving way to I'll Be Missing You again. It would go on to sell over 970,000 copies in the UK and was the 11th best-selling single of 1996, one place above How Deep Is Your Love by Take That and one behind To Become One by The Spice Girls. I thought we were quite concise there. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, enough of this lumpy shit. I can't go on any further. I need a break. We're going to leave it right there, Pog Craze Youngsters. Do come and join us in the next part to see if this episode gets any better. Spoiler alert, no it doesn't. (laughs) On behalf of Neil Kulkarna and Simon Price, my name's Al Needham, this is Chant Music, stay safe, stay indoors, but above all, stay pop crazed. (laughs) Chant Music. Great Big Owl. I'm Tilly Steele. And I'm Helen Monks. And this is Bitchin'. I'm dyslexic. Yeah, why do you read the Wikipedia <laughs> page? It's good to practice. Yeah. A podcast where every week we talk about a different person. So how old was he when he first popped on the scene? That's a great If question. you say he was my age, I'm gonna <laughs> fucking die. And we veer wildly off track. Pop that Prosec. <laughs> Available on all your podcast apps. That's not right. Uh, Can you not say er in the advert? (laughs) Available on all your podcast platforms. Just search Bitchin' or Great Big Owl. We'll see you there. That was all right.